and welcome to a new episode of the podcast from the Women in Peacebuilding Network. Uh, we have recorded a few uh, episodes already with hosting a group of extraordinary women from uh, the Middle East and North Africa region that were honored our members of uh, our own peacebuilding network uh, at ECFR. So today uh, we talk about quite a grim topic, but we will make our best to go deep into a very analytical perspective and provide some reading to the events and even perhaps some smaller scenarios about the regional impact of the escalation in Israel and Palestine. Of course, uh, listeners would be aware that um, after the terrorist attack by Hamas on the 7th of October in Israel, Israel has retaliated with uh, a comprehensive all-out military campaign that um, is really having a, a huge uh, humanitarian impact in, in Palestine. And obviously, this uh, renewed tensions and violence is uh, having severe implications already around the region. We are seeing smaller scale attacks um, in a number of countries from Lebanon to Syria to Iraq, especially against uh, U.S. Uh, troops and forces deployed there, uh, some low intensity tit for tat uh, between Israel and and, and Hezbollah in Lebanon, and also attacks from the Houthis in Yemen, who have tried to hit Israel uh, through the launch of missiles and drones, uh, with a couple of them actually landing uh, not uh, so far from Israeli territory, and also trying to seize international uh, vessels into the Red Sea uh, waters. So certainly the region is boiling um, and we definitely need to understand implications and try to measure uh, scenarios. And I'm really glad that I'm joined by two of our uh, members, of the, our network's members. We are live from the Doha Forum and uh, we, of course, are having numerous conversations on this topic um, around the forum uh, in these couple of days. And Qatar always has been playing uh, a significant role as well. So uh, thank you so much for joining me and let's get right into that. Dania Fafer, a lecturer at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. and the executive director Director of the Gulf International Forum. Uh, welcome. Uh, thanks for joining again. And, uh, thanks for having me. And the first question I would like to ask you is, because we are at Doha Forum, could you elaborate uh, a little bit on how you see Qatar um, managing this uh, new cycle of violence in Israel and Palestine and playing a very delicate role on hostage um, diplomacy? Well, uh, Qatar, uh, as you mentioned, is, is, is actually playing a very uh, delicate role um, in trying to de-escalate uh, 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 the Gaza war. And um, uh, and actually, interestingly enough, part of its constitution is, is to try to de-escalate. It's actually written in the constitution to de-escalate um, different conflicts. So I find that uh, quite uh, fascinating. Um, and uh, so in order to do that, uh, Qatar has uniquely kept kept its doors open with different parties um, and uh, has tried to be at the center of, of kind of uh, major conflicts and in, in, in mediation. Um, we saw that with Afghanistan and the Taliban, between the U.S. and the Taliban, and actually Qatar played a really outsized role um, when the so-called end of the war 
happened and uh, we saw the whole debacle with the U.S. Uh, withdrawing from Afghanistan. Um, also um, in the Ukraine-Russia uh, war as well, uh, Qatar has uh, negotiated, mediated um, uh, hostage releases. Um, and so now here we are in another major uh, war. And uh, just like it did with the Taliban, it kept uh, an office uh, for Hamas in, in Qatar and placed itself um, strategically at the forefront of negotiations for, for this uh, conflict. So um, this is nothing new uh, that, uh, for Qatar. Um, and uh, and uh, as well as it's engaging with Hamas, it's also engaging with Israel. Um, Uh, we saw Israeli officials were here also in, in Qatar uh, to engage uh, with Hamas and uh, uh, they're messaging between all the parties back and forth, uh, trying to find any sort of window. Um, I think from their perspective, they've mentioned the escalation in conflict has made it um, very difficult for them to uh, really come to any sort of new iterations of hostage uh, deals. And I think that's where they are right now. And um, let's see how, how it goes moving forward. Yes, and thank you very much. Um, indeed, you know, the prime minister of Qatar also here at the Doha Forum uh, really indicated that, uh, that this was sort of communicated uh, more difficulty right now uh, into uh, doing a new iteration of hostage diplomacy. It seems like Despite their best efforts, uh, the Qataris are also a little bit stuck at the moment uh, because of the party's opposition. So that's, I think, important to um, to highlight. Uh, now over to Alam Fahro. Um, she is also an academic at Exeter University. Uh, she's an associate fellow at Chatham House's uh, Middle East and North Africa program and also a member of ACFR's MENA uh, Women in Peacebuilding Network. Thank you so much for joining us, Alham. And Uh, the question I have for you is we've talked about um, Qatar, um, but, uh, you know, the other thing that is very noticeable is that there are significant differences um, between the, the different Gulf monarchies on how they are looking at the, the escalation between Israel and, and, uh, and in Palestine. Of course, some significant commonalities as well, but interesting differences. For example, you know, here in Qatar, we've learned that uh, the celebration of the National Day, which is supposed to happen on the 18th of December, has been toned down significantly. Uh, other countries have gone forward with, you know, their own celebrations uh, or their own events, including, you know, mega concerts in Saudi Arabia, for example. And that's, you know, one sort of arguably smaller difference, but can you tell us more about uh, just how these different countries look at uh, the issue? Absolutely. So all of the Gulf countries are united in some way. So they do share several commonalities. All have called for a ceasefire jointly to, to end the conflict uh, in Gaza, and all have called for the greater entry of humanitarian aid Uh, to help alleviate the suffering of the people in Gaza. And at the same time, all Gulf states also back a two-state solution to the conflict um, and would like to see diplomacy resume. 
Aside from these broad strokes, they've differed um, in terms of their actions. So they are united at that level of rhetoric, but they've differed in more concrete policies. So as uh, Dania mentioned, uh, Qatar has been a leader in diplomacy on this front um, and played a very unique role in brokering between Hamas and Israel. It does so at the request of the United States, um, which is really again, part of its diplomatic uh, role and function, as Dania mentioned in its constitution even. Um, Saudi Arabia now has played a different role. Saudi Arabia is really trying to angle itself as the leader of the Arab and Islamic world on this front. It's brought together uh, Muslim leaders, Arab leaders at at different moments and in different configurations, um, initially in Riyadh and next by leading a delegation to visit the P5 countries and urge for a ceasefire. So Saudi Arabia is exercising its diplomacy too, but at a different level. Um, uh, Oman has been pretty forceful in its condemnations, unusually forceful um, for a country that tries to be diplomatic and that has also been diplomatic towards Israel. Uh, Amman has been very, very forceful on that front. Um, meanwhile, I think Bahrain and the UAE are a little bit different. Both are the two countries. These are the two countries that have relations with Israel. They've both been very reluctant to jeopardize these, these relations. So initially their statements were a little bit more um, actually focused on condemning Hamas. Uh, that was the initial stage of the conflict. Uh, as time went on, they've been a bit more forceful in condemning Israel, but they've been very clear as well that this does not come at the expense of the relations. Um, you know, Bahraini officials particularly have been clear that this doesn't jeopardize the economic relationship between the two sides. And that sets them apart really um, from the other Gulf states that have been a little bit more forceful. So let me, I, I have to ask you a, a follow-up then, because we cannot not mention also the negotiations between Israel and Saudi Arabia mediated by the United States, uh, which were ongoing, you know, uh, quietly before the 7th of October. And um, I'm keen to hear your assessment um, in terms of what do you think um, that will look like um, in, in right now and in over the next uh, few months Absolutely. So Saudi Arabia has suspended its normalization talks, uh, as you know, with Israel as a result of this conflict, um, consistent with its position in pushing for a ceasefire, consistent with its more forceful take. Um, this does set back, I mean, there, you know, to American officials, it appeared to them that a deal was imminent, that it would happen, if not immediately in the short term, then at least in the medium term. I think this does set it back um, significantly. And, you know, it also depends on how long this goes on for and what the outcome is in Gaza. We still don't know that yet. But certainly Saudi's normalization, I think, is off the table in the short term. It, it cannot do so when there's so much public outrage towards events in Gaza across the Arab and Muslim world. Um, but at the same time, this is interesting because it does give Saudi Arabia further leverage, I think, and, and pushing for its own domestic gains out of a normalization agreement, but also potentially something for the Palestinians. That's that's very interesting. Uh, thank you, Elham. Can I direct the same question to Dania? Because you also, you know, sitting in D.C., um, you also have been hearing, I'm sure, a lot of different takes on the future of Israel-Saudi normalization, whether that can still happen, you know, if it could happen um, sooner rather than later, um, what are the Saudis thinking? So can I ask you, uh, what have you been hearing in the US, in DC about this subject and then your own assessment of uh, um, potential outlook for Israel-Saudi relations? Well, in DC, um, prior actually to this war, 
Um, there was a lot of excitement uh, around policymakers and think tankers um, about this prospective deal. And they, they actually thought it was, it was going through. It's on the cusp of going through. And um, obviously, most stakeholders in D.C. were excited about that because, as you know, D.C. is very much um, influenced by the Israeli lobby. Um, uh, now, I think uh, there's a great concern about what's going to happen next. Um, but if you listen to people in Congress and other places, uh, 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 for example, like Lindsey Graham said yesterday, that he will make sure that Congress would pass a treaty to allow for sort of a defense mechanism for Saudi Arabia, a defense treaty. Because as you know, actually this defense treaty component of, of normalization has to go through Congress, which actually complicates what uh, Biden promises uh, in, in his deal. So it seems like the Americans are trying to put forward more incentives to push for normalization. Mm -hmm. And th that's something uh, that is interesting to note. There, there's a great concern, I think, uh, uh, about normalization. But I think right now there's also a major focus on the, the Gaza war and trying to deal with that uh, situation um, as Biden is is going to be running for, for office very soon. So he's trying to balance winning an election with a lot of Arabs and Muslims in swing states. Mm -hmm. And also, um, of course, needing to win the election um, with the influence of the Israeli lobby. Yeah, and so a short follow-up on what you were saying, because uh, indeed Lindsey Graham said that he would make sure that Congress would pass a defense treaty with Saudi Arabia in exchange for Saudi normalization with Israel. And also he was very clear um, in saying that um, that U.S. support for Israel would not uh, wind down uh, in, a, in a new administration or, or in the future, because obviously there is... There are people who are arguing that, you know, that the U.S. Um, needs to focus its resources on the Indo-Pacific and then they also have the Ukraine war. And so they can't really also be supporting um, Israel so thoroughly uh, for a long time. But he wanted very clearly to sort of reject those assumptions and say that actually from his point of view, that that would be that, that support for Israel should be there and would be there in the longer term. So I want to ask you, do you think that Lindsey Graham is somehow representative of where the Republicans are at um, beyond him? And obviously, there's always the Trump wildcard in that question. Yes, the, 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 the Trump wildcard is a big question mark. And it'll be very interesting to see how things change. Um, in terms of, of, of Gulf policy and the way uh, countries in the Gulf will respond to that. But one thing that's not a wild card is in, in, in Washington, D.C., both Republicans and Democrats staunchly uh, support Israel. Um, aside from a handful of, of people in Congress um, from the progressive uh, branch of the Democratic Party, and so um, I really don't see any change in U.S. policy um, and, you know, I mean, Trump, he was the one who started the Abraham Accords. So this is, in his view, one of his greatest leg legacies. And Biden has actually built upon that. And I, I, I think if Trump won, you're going to see almost the same policy moving forward when it comes to Israel. 
Yes, thank you very much. That's very interesting. Um, so Elham, then Dania has mentioned um, the Abraham Accords. You're actually writing a book on the Abraham Accords, which is going to be out soon on uh, with Columbia University Press, and we're really looking forward to reading it. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, how you see the Abraham Accords developing? Thanks, Jinzia. Um, so the Abraham Accords were never really about the Palestinians. I think they took place actually as at least for Israeli leaders, at least for Prime Minister Netanyahu. This was a way to bypass the Palestinians and move towards relations with the Arab states without having to really deal with territorial concessions or a political solution. Certainly not a two state solution. This is not something that was a short term way of thinking. It's actually part of a longer policy that he's had since coming to power um, in 2009. He's worked actively against a two-state solution. And so the Abraham Accords for him were definitely a win to be able to bypass this entire problem and just move ahead with relations with the Arab states. Now, on the Gulf side of things from the UAE and Bahrain, it, it also wasn't really about the Palestinians. The main focus of the agreements was to you know, have a new relationship with Israel that encompasses certain strategic and security dimensions, military dimensions, and it does encompass something as simple as economics and trade. Um, so there really never was a framework for dealing with this issue. Um, what we have now is a situation where the Palestinian issue is back on the agenda. It's back front and center. So far, the Abraham Accords have not really been useful as a mechanism for resolving this dispute. Whether that's going to change depends on the willingness uh, of the Gulf states to use the leverage that they have. Um, but so far, they haven't used it uh, to, to alter any, anything re regarding this diplomatic framework. Um, but the issue is back, and I think it does highlight the fact that um, the Accords have been have really not offered very much in the way of a diplomatic resolution to the to the main conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Yeah, I think uh, that's a very um, interesting uh, reading, and uh, it it is responding to what we're seeing playing out right now as well. Um, so let me ask you a brief follow up on on this point. Um, so you don't think that then uh, uh, that they will be that the Accords will be in jeopardy, um, that they will be re Re, there will be a rethinking of uh, the relations or just a significant uh, change to that. The, the Arab country that has gone furthest um, with relations, the Arab country that has relations with Israel that has gone the furthest is Jordan, um, which took steps to suspend its ambassador. But the, the Gulf, Gulf countries haven't done that, nor has Egypt. Um, I don't believe that the accords are in jeopardy. If you look at the rhetoric coming out of the UAE and Bahrain, again, both have, you know, stated publicly that they are committed to the relationship with Israel. At the same time, they have called for a ceasefire. The, UA the UAE has used its role um, in, at the UN to uh, to push for a ceasefire, to push for resolutions, uh, to, to bring the conflict to an end in Gaza. Um, but no, this does not come at the cost of its relationship with Israel. It's, it's important to see that it's the UAE especially is doing its best to kind of balance both. But I don't think that walking back on the accords is something that either Gulf country has in mind. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, Dania, when we talk about balance, I think the balancing, the most uh, dangerous in a way and risky balancing that we are seeing is arguably, or I would argue, what Saudi Arabia is trying to do uh, in its relationship with Iran. Uh, because they're really, I think 
trying to be quite cautious and but at the same time there's obviously nervousness on, on arguably you know both sides and in particular the Saudi side because they see the region uh, um, sort of becoming more tense and they see uh, incidents happening especially you know close to their borders on or onto their territory you know, in, in some cases uh, through the Houthis. Um, what do you think, how would you read Saudi Arabia's reaction to um, violence in Israel-Palestine in the context of its relationship to Iran? Well, um, in short, I really think that uh, the conflict brought, brought Saudi Arabia closer to Iran rather than distancing itself from Iran. Um, we see the most intimate relations with Iran since several years now. And I think uh, Saudi Arabia has kind of a new approach to how it looks at its security. And, and, and an important part of that is because they want to really ensure um, by 2030 that they have, they're able to, to successfully achieve their economic goals. And as we know, with economic uh, success, uh, the first thing that investors flee from is any securities. Investors are very risk averse. And so this is very important for Saudi Arabia. And um, what Saudi Arabia has done, uh, exactly this, uh, had Chinese broker this deal, which was actually, the legwork was done by Iraq and Oman. We need to give them credit where they where, where it's deserved. But um, this, this deal was kind of be able to um, secure themselves in case there's a conflict between Israel and Iran. And that's why they went ahead and normalized with Iran before they were considering normalizing with Israel. And for this exact situation, I believe they became closer to Iran. They do not want any issues with Iran or any of Iran's partners or proxies um, in the region. Saudi Arabia is trying to move a different direction. Now, who knows what what will come in the region and how that might suck Saudi Arabia into another direction. Um, but but, uh, but I think uh, the strategy right now is to engage Iran to avoid any further tensions. And yeah, I mean, that's uh, it's been fascinating to watch. Uh, and even on some of the closest issues for the Saudis, uh, for example, on the Houthis, uh, it's been interesting to hear that allegedly uh, when a number of American policymakers brought up the idea of placing the Houthis back on the foreign terrorist organization list, there would have been sort of a, uh, re a very cautious reaction uh, from Saudi Arabia saying, you know, it's not the right time, it's not the right move. Um, so that goes to show that even in an issue that is really, really close to their security concerns, uh, as Yemen, they are trying to uh, exercise maximum restraint in a way. But I I think you're very right in pointing that you never know uh, what happens in the region if they could get uh, sucked into uh, a different um, scenario and, and more conflict. Um, I mean, do you think that this is uh, still a possibility that it's on the table, that things could get out of control and Saudi Arabia would have to pivot from its uh, restraint position? Well, yes, I do think that if things continue to this degree, I do think that there's going to be escalation. And um, the Houthis just said 
um, hey, if anybody comes and attacks us, we're going to attack American interests in the region. What exactly does that mean? I mean, the Gulf states are are in close proximity with American bases there. And so escalation could very well be an issue. And I think the Houthis also understand that the Saudi Arabians do not, the Saudi Arabians do not want to escalate. So this is also a pressure mechanism on Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and yeah, it could very well be. I think, uh, you know, uh, the region could, could go ablaze with one wrong move. And so the best way moving forward is really to de-escalate the Gaza war. Yeah. Uh, so I have one last question for Halham as well. Um, and that's about uh, sort of a zooming out uh, into the international um, response or basically uh, the response to also the tour of Arab foreign ministers in the P5 uh, capitals uh, and their outreach um, to different, you know, to China, uh, as well as to traditional partners in the West. I mean, just your assessment, your analysis on, uh, for example, you know, a Chinese involvement, um, do you think that's a credible scenario? Um, or, you know, in general about international diplomacy at the UN level on, as a way to credibly solve the, the violence? I mean, there's no doubt that this conflict has cost the U.S. a lot of moral capital and moral ground in the region. Um, There's a huge public outcry across the Arab world um, and rising, rising anti-U.S. sentiments. I think to the scale that we haven't seen since the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, anti-Israel sentiments uh, like we haven't seen since the, the Second Intifada, I think. So... You know, that doesn't that doesn't mean that the U.S. can't play a role. In fact, it's still the best positioned actor to play a role, particularly because it's the it's the power that has leverage over Israel. And that's the issue here. Um, So there is certainly potential for other powers to come in in some capacity, um, whether that's by, you know, urging parties to to come to the table or have talks. Um, but I still believe that the U.S. is the main party that, that can play a role. It has so done so historically. Let's not forget the U.S. has been the only party able to broker peace agreements between Jordan and, and Israel and Egypt and Israel. Uh, that, that came off the back of U.S. diplomacy. It, it really does have a role to play here, um, and it's best positioned to do so. Uh, so other powers may be in some capacity, but to me, the U.S. just has to step up. Thank you both. Uh, that was um, that was super interesting, and uh, I'm very grateful for your time in a very busy Doha Forum schedule. Uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground, uh, and uh, it, it was great to have you both on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.